Hello and welcome to the 15th episode of the Melbourne AWS User Group Podcast. My name is Arjen Swartz and I'm your host today. And it turns out we got an answer to last month's question. I didn't do any better with the editing as we're actually recording this before last month's episode goes up. <laughs> Great job, me! <laughs> but let's not dwell on the past, except by looking at the announcements of May 2021. And as you probably guessed, for that I'm once again joined by... Two wonderful people, Guy Morton. Hello, everyone. And Jean-Manuel Becker. Hello, everyone. Happy to be here again. So let's get started. And while finally in Sydney is a very disappointing nothing new this month, we did have a summit. So that's good. It was virtual again. And it seemed like it was actually a lot better than last year's summit, where we did not have much positive to say about it at all. Yeah, the, the irony, though, is that like last year's summit, a lot of us actually did try and go and, and and watch things and the user experience was terrible. This year, the user experience by all accounts was much better. And the three of us watched between us about 10 minutes. Yes. <laughs> Too busy with work. So, that, that's the problem with uh, online event, isn't it? Like you don't block your yeah. calendar or you accept meetings on top where if you were away, you're away. So yes, I, wa- I watched part of the, um, the keynote and then uh, one session and that's it. I didn't have time to do the rest. But came back to, to some about DDoS protection. There was some good stuff about uh, Security Hub as well. So have a look. There is some good uh, 300 and 400 session on the Thursday agenda. Yep, and all the videos are now available on demand. I actually don't know how long that took. I, just, I only found out after I got one of those phone calls from AWS where they asked, hey, what did you think of the summit? <laughs> I think they came out the following week, like it was mon- Monday, yeah, Monday, Monday, Tuesday, somewhere, somewhere around there. Oh, that's pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. And look, that is the upside of the online summit is you do, you know, you do have that library of content that you can go and go and check out. But, you know, it's not like there isn't a, a, a heap of other content that you could also check out. But anyway, it's all good. It's all good. As content creators, we can hardly kind of say, hey, hey who needs more content? <laughs> of course you need more AWS content as we're giving it to you now. So about about event, I think uh, we can uh, receive an email uh, just recently that uh, reInvent 2021 is uh, on and it will be on uh, from the 29th of November to the 3rd of December 2021 and in person. Um, that's interesting. Can you say super spreader event? Super spreader event, <laughs> yes. Uh, it's $17.99 US and you still can attend it uh, virtually for free. So um, all Australian, I'm sure, are going to do it from here. We won't be allowed to go, but I'm still looking forward for the relevant quality of sessions and, and uh, keynotes. Yeah. Because while we can register from here, I don't think it's a good idea, personally, to bet that they will open the borders earlier than they've said they will. So unless you're happy to stick around in the US for a while, you may need to just go for virtual. Yeah. So uh, registration can open from the 15th of June. You can go to the reInvent awsevent.com to have some more information on the FAQ. I wonder if you could come back via New Zealand and spend a couple of weeks in New Zealand first. I'm sure you can't. (laughs) I'm just, you know, trying to solve the problem. That'd be kind of neat. New Zealand's lovely at that time of year, apparently. New Zealand is always lovely. That's very true. And it's a 10 years of reInvent. So it will be the 10 event, 10 years. That's open for big celebration. So it'll make it extra big. Yes. It will also, of course, be the first reinvent with the new CEO. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Good point. Yeah. Oh, well, no point thinking too much about that because not going to be there anyway. So, yeah, let's move on. 
let's have a look at serverless. So extensions, Lambda extensions are now generally available. Yes. So this is this is the new, well, new. When was it announced? It was announced probably about a year ago, wasn't it? Almost. Seems like a long time. Last year's reInvent? Well, a little bit before that. Like in the... I think it was November before reInvent, yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. So this is the new, well, newish ability to run extensions outside the execution context of your Lambda function. And it's it, it sort of adds, allows you to, to wrap monitoring, observability, security, and governance type stuff around your Lambda functions. So there's a lot of pre-built extensions for companies like Splunk and Datadog that allow them then to essentially you know get more visibility into your the running of your Lambda function. Yeah, there's some extension for checkpoint as well. If you really want to control your egress traffic from the Lambda function without having to uh, connect your Lambda function to your VPC and doing egress from there. So um, yeah, a couple of good extensions. Amazon CloudWatch as well, it's an extension um, that AWS uses the same product and you can build your own as well. So um, yeah, very, very interesting. It, it kind of slow down a bit your Lambda execution because that's the same type of window and then it will extend the cost as well because you share the CPU, you share the memory and the storage with the function when you run your, your Lambda. So um, maybe you will need to beef up a, a little bit your, your Lambda size for that. It's available uh, in GA, in US East, in Ireland and Europe. Except today was announced that there's actually GA everywhere now. Oh, cool. Okay. The other big thing, I think, on the serverless side wouldn't probably be CloudFront Functions, mm. which is a competitor, a different way of doing it to Lambda at Edge, but using far smaller... JavaScript functions. Yeah. So you've only got one option of runtime. You've got JavaScript and that's it. But yeah, it's a definitely it's definitely going to replace a, a bunch of um, Lambda at Edge functions. It can only do um, viewer request and viewer response. It, it doesn't have the, the other two options that Lambda at Edge has got. So essentially you're... You just write a little snippet of JavaScript. It gets passed an event object. The event object's got the context and the um, viewer request and response nodes in it. So depending on whether it's viewer request or viewer response that you're doing, it, you'll, it, those will be populated or not. And yeah, the the, the the you know most common use case is going to be doing things like uh, rewriting headers or doing redirects, little little things that you need to do based on something that's in the request. Um, yeah. So super neat sort of solution for those sorts of really lightweight use cases. A big difference as well with Lambda Edge is Lambda Edge run in the CloudFront uh, regional edge cache. So there are 13 of them across the world. So it's less um, mm-hmm. you know, spread where the CloudFront function will run around 218 plus CloudFront edge location which is much more distributed. And on top of that, you can run under the one millisecond uh, execution time because they are so small, but you have obviously some limitation in memory and package size. To compare Lambda Edge, who is you know more in the second, like three, five seconds with triggers uh, and 30 seconds for the origin triggers. So much faster, much more spread and, and much cheaper as well. Yeah, it's a really good option to replace a lot of those Lambda edge, edge functions that are just yeah. doing simple things like redirects and, and, and header rewrites. So yeah, it's a it's a very, it's an, it's probably my favorite announcement of the month, I think. You can do access authorization as well with uh, GW token uh, and, and uh, HMAC token as well. So uh, that's pretty interesting that you can really do that authorization at the edge without even 
enriching your environment. So yeah. Yeah, but just keep in mind you don't have access to anything outside of the function, which is why it has to run in less than one millisecond. Because it doesn't have a choice that is the actual maximum execution time. You can't have you can't use more than two megabytes of memory. Package size is ten kilobytes, which basically means don't use npm but yeah there's definitely a use case for this and that will beat a lot of things up mm. there's been some event bridge announcements so you can uh, it's now supports sharing events between event buses in the same account or region so um, you can um, move events between different buses in the same account and region now which I think is again just uh, you know they're really positioning event bridges as the backbone you know event handler for your um, event-driven applications. So instead of being, you know, having to have everything in the one bus, you can now sort of fan out to other buses is the, I think, the, the theory there. Yeah, it's not available to all regions then. Um, you can send and receive between Virginia, uh, US West, and uh, Bahrain, a um, couple of islands, Stockholm, Paris, and Tokyo, and Singapore, and Sydney, but not all the region yet. So that, that's uh, more to come. But it is in Sydney. So that's that's what we care about, right? Yeah, but you can't send it to other regions who don't support it yet. So you, you kind of get stuck. No, no, but this isn't the between regions. This is this is sharing events between event buses in the same account and region. So this is having multiple event buses in the same account and region. You can send events. You can share events between those now. Oh, I see. Yeah, it's not it's not the it's not the multi-region, which is yes, that's that was a different announcement. Apology. That's all right. You're right so much of the time, JM. That you know everyone's got to be wrong once in a while <laughs> yeah it's the same account yeah. um the other announcement that was about event bridge was step functions now has a, a service integration with event bridge so you can now send events directly to event bridge from step functions without actually having to write any code it's supported as a as a service integration so you can send custom events from the workflows in step functions into event bridge where obviously you can do things like orchestrate other things to happen um, as a result of those events. So that's also just another neat support for the, you know, the, the sort of event application, event driven application model that AWS is clearly um, recommending us all to go down. Drink the Kool-Aid. It's delicious. <laughs> um, the other thing I, I noticed there was, sorry, I'm talking a lot. Um, <laughs> the other thing I was going to call out in this section is the um, server-side rendering for, uh, so Amplify bringing in um, server-side rendering for Next.js web apps. And probably no one remembers, but um, at the start of this year, I did a talk at the AWS user group about um, deploying a Next app with server-side rendering into AWS. Um, now you don't need to do that. <laughs> Any of that stuff that I, <laughs> that I built, um, I have, there's an open source project <laughs> connected to that talk. So if anyone actually um, uh, took use, made use of that, throw it away today and just use Amplify because Amplify is supporting um, Next.js server-side rendering for API routes, dynamic pages, and automatic pre-rendering. So it supports all of those things just out of the box. You just connect your repo to your Amplify app and away you go. It just auto-magically happens, which is a lot easier than what I put together but you got things out of it you got to play with some open source code that you wrote yourself you got to talk to give about it yeah, yeah. oh yeah sure I, I... and now you can just <laughs> throw it away <laughs> That's right. I don't have to maintain it. That's the nice thing. I actually went into GitHub the other day and, you know, 
if you've got a bunch of projects and I'm sure you, you guys know but you know you, you, you kind of get those GitHub reminders of you know Dependabot alerts and saying oh you know such and such a library has been deprecated and you've got this security issue and da 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 and you sort of put it off because you go yeah yeah I'll get to it I'll get to it I'll get to it the other day I sat down and did all, up did all my updates and, and all the rest of it and that was one of the things I had to update but now I could have just deleted <laughs> it right but if I deleted it there's no points in the ambassador program for it so, so I'm going to leave it there because not everyone wants to use Amplify, right? Some people might still want to use my project. So it lives on. And the last one then at the serverless side is that API Gateway REST APIs now support calling the step function synchronous express workflows. Yeah, I, I needed this two months ago. <laughs> um, so I did a synchronous express workflow in the last um, last job. And um, yeah, it was really frustrating because we had REST APIs for other things. And then we had to have HTTP API for, for this thing because it was the only way you could you could invoke them. So yeah, it's nice to see the feature the feature parity kind of going both ways because usually it's HTTP APIs get something that you know that was in REST. In this case, it's something REST is getting something that was in that HTTP APIs could do. So yeah, keep keep that up. Maybe one day there'll be one API product to rule them all. In the meantime, we just have to wade through the appalling documentation and struggle to deal with the fact that there's two different products from AWS, both called something API, called API something or other. And um, yeah, anyway, never mind. It's another pet peeve. I'll leave it for another day. Okay, we go to containers. So now, now I get to shut up and take a take a breath. <laughs> um, EKS and EKS distro now support communities one point two zero. Some couple of improvement there, and as a result, uh, one sixteen will no longer be supported at, uh, after July twenty fifth. Um, so you will need to upgrade your communities cluster EKS in AWS before that date, as usual, because you don't want AWS to do that for you. Yes. Everybody knows that it's perfect and no, nothing will ever go wrong if you just upgrade part of it. <laughs> so you, won't have to, you don't have to go to 120, obviously, but you can go to 117. That's a, that would be the latest version support. Yeah. yeah. And then in a couple of months, you will have to do the same thing. <laughs> That's the beauty of Kubernetes. People who pick Kubernetes for the container orchestration instead of ECS, they can have fun. It's great for job security. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Um, another announcement, uh, it's about EBS a CSI driver um, for the storage interface. Um, you need, on this one, EKS 117 minimum, and that helps you um, attaching uh, permanent volumes to your pods. And um, so you can have support for snapshotting, support for resizing, volumetric health checks, all of that out of the box with that driver. Um, yeah, use it instead of something else. Use the AWS version of the driver. Another one actually similar to that that is quite useful is the um, EKS add-ons. So that was originally released, I don't remember exactly when, a while back at least. But what it allows you to do is to put some of the add-ons. So originally it was the networking plugin. You can define that just with the infrastructure instead of in your kubeconfig and then going through the process there to upgrade it when you upgrade. And now you can do the same for core DNS and kube proxy. Oh, yeah. So this should make updating your cluster, let's say you're running 120 or, or 116 and you need to update, it will make that a lot easier. Of course, it only works for 118. Yeah, it's part of the configuration uh, of your kube. And like you said, it, it runs only from 118. So um, yeah, 
embrace it uh, for coordinates and, and cube proxy. Another announcement with EKS is the management group support node tanks. Seems to be been very popular for people who run different type of workload uh, on EKS and Kubernetes. You have three effects you can you can apply to the node: no schedule, preferred no schedule, or no execute. When you say no schedule, so nothing will be scheduled on the uh, on the on the pod, and preference no schedule will be you know just in case you need to have that pod running. Uh, but for people who have uh, GPUs or or other thing like that, they can really make sure that um, they don't get consumed by pod who don't need them. Uh, and with the no execute, when it's added to the node, um, everything will be evicted immediately. So if you want to, you know, refresh your node or something like that, that you can use the tent to, to be able to clean up uh, your, your node very quickly. So that's supported now on managed node. That's the important differentiation from AWS. Yeah. So in non-EKS news, there's a new service called AppRunner. Yes. Basically, what this allows you to do is either define a repository for some runtimes or just an ECR repository. So the first, I meant a code repository or an ECR repository. And it will handle everything for you from there in theory. So it will spin up your Fargate containers. It will put a load balancer in front of it and it should make it all very easy and simple to run. Basically, think Beanstalk, but for containers. Well, Beanstalk had an offering for containers at the time, but uh, yeah. I know. That's true. It's, it's, it's kind of like a cross between Beanstalk and it's almost like an Amplify. But we had LightSail. LightSail does the same thing. Yeah. Again, so it's another way of running containers. Um, here, the, the two uh, runner runtime that uh, Arjun was mentioning is Python 3 and Node.js 12. That's it. So okay. you don't have much flexibility yet um, about connecting your repo to that. But I mean, it's it's a cool way of doing it. It's probably a, a response to the competition from another cloud uh, who had a similar product. The pricing is simple. It's uh, 6 cents per hour per vCPU and then 007 cents per hour for the memory and then $1 per application per month. So it's, you know, pretty easy. Do, do you get much control over um, where it's where it's living, or you know? Oh uh, no, you you don't run that. Uh, you can't run that in your VPC or anything like that. Uh, that's that's a, like a light sales service. Is in the is in the the Fargate world <laughs> of AWS, and you end up with a load balancer and it's a certificate in front. You can use a CNAME and then publish your app, right? Uh, but my my point is like, where do you put your data? Uh, where do you need to DynamoDB or something, and then it's becoming public again. So support for EFS? Uh, no, no, no. It's, it's very light. It's um, I mean, if you run everything on it, but. You can't even run WordPress or anything like that. You will need a database somewhere. That's, that's why, it, to me, it sort of feels a little bit... I mean, I know Amplify is a whole lot of other different stuff, but it kind of feels a little bit to me like just the deployment part of Amplify because, it, you know, that's doing... That's packaging up your app and running it for you as well, and presumably in a container in in a Fargate style environment, and it does the load balancer and the DNS and all the rest of it. It just seems to me like maybe it's like Amplify without without the web framework or the the, the actual app framework stuff on on the front. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of the bit from the repo back to deployment into into the container environment. So, yeah, it's available at the moment in uh, US East, US West, Tokyo, and Ireland. And you can manage AppRunner with the console or the AWS Copilot CLI. Yet another way, I don't know if there will be 
much kind of embracing that new way of deploying containers, but that might be a use case. Yeah, I can kind of see see what the appeal of it would be, especially if you're a developer who doesn't, re- you know, who's, uses containers but isn't really much interested in all the detail of how it works. Um, if you can just sort of set it up, get a load balancer, get a, you know, domain name, get a certificate um, through clicking a few checkboxes in a few, you know, step by, in a wizard and you know everything's kind of managed for you that's probably quite appealing uh, no information about the scaling or the failover in case of az failing i mean you need to trust aws to do the right thing behind that but uh, i'm sure that's all you know going to move between az's if an az has problems and all that sort of stuff you did expect that that basic kind of stuff to to be there but yeah, I mean, I don't know either. I'm just making an assumption based on AWS eating their own dog food about resilience and <laughs> that they wouldn't architect a solution that didn't have that. Yeah, but let's say it might take like, I don't know, a minute or two to scale or, or a couple of minutes to fail over to another uh, AZ. So that, that might be uh, not for every workload. Yeah, Yeah. true. Yeah, could be. One other announcement here that I felt was interesting is for the Amazon managed service for Prometheus. Wonderful name still. Uh (laughs) There's so many of those now. So just as a reminder, this is still in preview. It's not generally available. It's definitely not available in Sydney. But the price reduction is by about 84% or up to 84%, which to me sounds a lot like the same thing as with CodeGuru. Yeah. That after AWS started running it, they suddenly realized people don't actually want to pay a lot more than they would if they just run it themselves or yeah. use a competing product. I mean, it could also be, I mean, you know, and, and I don't know how AWS operates in this regard. I mean, it could also be that they 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 have a kind of conservative pricing model that they go to market with to, before they get a bit of information about, well, what does it actually cost us to support this product? You know, once they've got their few, sort of a few lead customers, they, they figure out what it actually costs them. And if they can make it cheaper, they do. Um, I mean, they do have a pretty, pretty good habit of doing that. So yeah. it might just be that the product manager for that particular product was a bit pessimistic about how expensive it was going to be to run, and he was wrong, or she. Yeah. Uh, it, it, so it's available in the uh, U.S. East, uh, Ohio and Virginia, U.S. West, Oregon, Frankfurt, and Ireland. So there is a free tier of 40 million metrics sample registered and uh, a query time of 60 minutes. And uh, after that is 90 cents per 10 million up to two billions and then 35 cents and 16 cents. So the big reduction obviously is in the higher tier when you are over 250 billion billion, uh, samples, uh, ingested. So, um, still need to evaluate the product if, if it's going to fit you, your needs to have that managed services for smaller type of deployment. Shall we have a look at EC2 and VPC? Why not? Yeah, for new EC2 high memory instance, uh, up to 12 terabyte of memory are available on demand. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Pretty cool. Is that terabytes or tebibytes? I've got to ask the question. <laughs> I don't know. I'm getting confused <laughs> on this one. It's Terra. There's no I in there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but this, these boxes have eight sockets of Xeon Platinum uh, Scarlake. So it, it's pretty uh, big machines. It's really to run uh, Sapana or um, Datamart Solution on ANA and all business warehouses. The the basic one is offering 100 gig and, you know, 38 gig bandwidth of EBS volume. It's the uh, the 56 um, version with 224 CPUs 
and then you have a higher version of 4, 448 vCPUs with uh, different flavor of memories. So uh, 9 or 12 terabytes. So massive, massive machines to be able to run. Um, pricing. It's available on demand, but I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, it's $110 an hour for the big one. <laughs> Hey, that's some chump chump change. And and uh, fifty four dollars for the uh, no forty six dollars sorry for the smallest one uh, with two hundred and twenty four vCPU and six terabyte of memory. So if you wanted the the big one, that's one hundred and five thousand Australian dollars a month. Um, so you need to think about saving plans there, uh, or obviously go to reserve instance. But it's for you know special usage. You might want to run your Sapana for a couple of hours to do a test and then destroy it. I don't know. Yeah. Find lessons to play with when you have some credit. <laughs> Need an awful lot of credit for that one. Um, EC2 Image Builder supports auto-scaling launch templates. Do you guys use Image Builder? No, I still don't like it. Yeah, give a couple of tries. TL doesn't fit the needs. Went back to Packer. Fair enough. So so what this thing does is it, it allows you to um, update, essentially, your auto-scaling launch template alongside your new AMI and essentially deploy them both together so that instead of you create your new, your new image and you, then you have to update your launch template, um, it'll do that step for you is how I understand it. I haven't used this stuff myself, so I'm not claiming any expertise, but it just sounds to me like they're sort of removing a, a manual awkward step that, that was re- required previously. Yeah. No, it's a good change. I just wish that the underlying product would be better. Well, it, it, it's very slow. The way you do the profile is difficult. Yeah, um, there is some advantage. You can co- uh, copy across accounts after the AMI has been finished and stuff. You can encrypt. You can do a couple of good things. But yeah, it's uh, when you're familiar with Packer, it's difficult to uh, move away from the simplicity. Yeah. Mm, yeah, fair enough. Um, VPC announces pricing change for VPC peering. This is a big one, actually. Yeah, it could could be significant. So it's the the announcement is they've made traffic free, but it within the same AZ. So if you're peering to VPCs, the traffic within the same AZ flowing between those VPCs is free now. Which which makes sense because the the, the expensive part is always crossing uh, AZs, right? Yeah. But it's a bit hit and miss because you don't know where your workload is going to end up. And I'll remind everyone like AZ for account A is not AZ for account B. So you sometimes you don't know yeah. where, where you are exactly. So you need to look at the advanced information that AWS provide now to know exactly which AZ to connect with. And they've anticipated that in their announcement by saying you can use the availability zone ID to uniquely and consistently identify an availability zone across different AWS accounts. So yes, that they've, they've specifically called that out because I guess they're, they're they're worried that people will think that zone A and zone A um, in the two different accounts means that this traffic's now free. Uh-uh. So before it was one cents per direction. Um, when you look at transit getaway, is two cents every time you pass through the transit getaway. Um, so there, there is definitely a cost reduction there for customers who wanted to have certain VPC isolation and still using peering to connect, for example, an EKS cluster to another VPC where the database are and stuff like that. So that could be useful and then saving some money there. So big change on that. But I feel like it, it should have been this way from day one uh, because the expensive part, again, is crossing AZs, not being in the same AZ at, at the cost level. Some people are never happy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's free It's free now, James. It's free now. <laughs> <laughs> 
Another one was who intrigued me, that's why I write about it, is Outpost launch support for EC2 capacity reservation. It's like a... Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Yeah. Excuse me, it's my stuff. Or I do not know what I have. But I understand better because when you read the announcement, it's about um, sharing your Outpost with multiple accounts, with Resource Access Manager. And then in that case, you might want to reserve certain uh, capacity for your production for them for running on Outpost and not to dev in UAT. So that makes sense to have uh, that, that capacity reservation available now for Outpost on DC2. Yeah, I thought the same thing. But then you, you, you think about it, you think, okay, you've got an outpost. It doesn't mean the, the dev team hasn't decided to yeah, spin exactly. up one of your new yeah. tw- tw- 12 terabyte instances on it. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Well, there's, an, uh, there's, there's a light sale announcement. Surely someone's going to talk about that. That's somebody issue. <laughs> okay, so so Amazon Light Sales announced that... Um, uh, you can the DNS uh, facility in that product now supports pointing root domains to Lightsail container services. So there you go. Root domains being the ones without the dub 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 on the front. Also called Apex records. Yeah. So now you can point your Apex records at your at your Lightsail container rised workload. Rejoice. Uh, you can have up to three DNS zone uh, and as many, many records as you need for uh, that light sale instance. Ah, oh, can we move on to Dev and Ops now? Yes. You want the CDK? CDK version two. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> well, uh, look, I think it's 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 a good solid step forward. Well, and I think you, you're a Go user, aren't you, Ian? Oh, I'm really happy about the Go support. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So you've got Go and just the, the this is the release that bundles all of the libraries into one bundle. So you've, you've only got one... Um, thing that you're including and everything within it is going to be kept compatible with one, with each other so it's going to make a lot of um, I think you're uh, make a lot of developers a little bit happier and, a, and have fewer problems I think working with CDK as a consequence of that okay and then go support yeah it's for every packages now so it's good yeah it's CDK 1 and 2 yeah yeah I haven't tried it out yet and while I joke about it finally being there i don't suspect that in a professional capacity i'll be using that much because then it's always more the languages that the clients want to use yeah TypeScript seems to be the preferred uh, language for the cdk i see a lot of modules and and and, and code deploy i don't know what's your your take on this one guy yeah you, you definitely do see a lot more i mean all i mean it is natively typescript first so and everything else is transpiled into typescript anyway essentially so yeah look if you want if you want to make your life um less painful generally speaking i think choosing to go with typescript is probably a, a smart move my experience with it is largely via python and yeah look i think there's there's challenges that come as a consequence of that but yeah Look, I think I think it's 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 improving all the time, and they've removed a bunch of stuff in this release too. They've de- deprecated a bunch of things and taken them out, and hopefully, hopefully, it's it's becoming more sort of reliable and fewer kind of surprising things <laughs> to, to encounter um, as it as it goes through its you know version two life cycle, and and we get a few enhancements and and fixes. Um, yeah, so t- definitely a, a good milestone. I think it's going to make developer life easier, definitely. It also looks like the migration from V1 to V2 is pretty straightforward. 
Yeah, yeah, because it's largely just about how how the the, the di- different packages are distributed. So they're now in a single package instead of individual packages. And yeah, I mean, you you get into the situation with the old with the with version one where you'd get a particular you'd, you'd get different versions of different components, and sometimes it would work, and sometimes it would blow up. So you know, <laughs> there could be dependencies between them. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, sometimes you'd get like version one point ninety eight of package A and one point one hundred and two of package B, and it would be perfectly fine. Um, next minute, all hell breaks loose. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's a good move. So is is the CDK becoming a bit more like PowerShell with all the no? Wash your mouth out. What? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that big library, that bigger and bigger library, instead of just downloading what you need, you need to have that whole library together. Ah, uh, I see what you're saying. Right. You made me feel dirty <laughs> for a moment then. I think I think they, I think their initial design sort of thought uh, about it would be really cool if all the different components were separate so you, you wouldn't have to import more than you needed. Um, you know, that was, that, was, that was kind of a... They were, they were coming from a good place, but yeah, it, it just... the 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 unintended consequences of that were probably worse than just put it all in the one thing and version the whole thing together. Okay. Another one uh, we're going to support Go this month is the uh, toolkit for Visual Studio. So it can support Java and Go now. Golang 1.14 plus. So you can program your Lambda function from the Studio's toolkit in Java directly in there. It, it's mostly for debugging. Yeah. I mean, obviously you could already program them in there, but um, yeah, it's definitely nice that you can now just have debugging. So you can have your stepping points and things like that to see what's going on instead of needing to use print statements. Yeah. So that's good. I think on the upside, there were a couple of big announcements. So there is now AWS Systems Manager Incident Manager. Yes. Which is um, supposed to help you with your incidents. I haven't really heard much in the way of positive things about it. Yeah, we had one of our colleagues who uh, did a rant on Twitter about the product and how he was a bit of rush MVP at the moment. It is not in every region, but it is in Sydney. Um, you can so manage your incident. Uh, it's supposed to help about incident response uh, to be able to have everything in one place, have the contacts, the escalation plan, the response plan for each of your workload or application. You know, yeah, another product from AWS about helping companies who don't have already in place a big product like that uh, for incident management. I mean, another way of looking at it is AWS moving into a you know kind of com- competing with their <laughs> their partners. Um, but uh, that's that's I guess a pattern. Um, I think it's interesting. I mean, they they to some extent. I mean, this is this is agile. You know, this is the world that we kind of supposedly champion. Um, to some extent, we kind of put an MVP out there, get some feedback, iterate, improve cycles. You know, so, you yeah, know, do the cycle right. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sort of. It doesn't really surprise me when AWS does this releases products that people look at it and think that's a bit half-baked isn't it and i wonder whether they actually do that on purpose or whether someone's getting their ass kicked. i'm sure i'm sure somebody's not getting their ass kicked right because culturally that wouldn't be the aws way i don't think but i do sort of wonder how um knowingly they sort of release these things that they know are not really ready in order to get that feedback and get yeah. that um you, you know early but i don't know 
maybe they thought it was perfect and they're really disappointed. I mean, what I like about it is the full integration with other things like CloudWatch, so you can have all your, yeah. you know, reporting, X-ray, all of that in one place. And, and yeah, you don't have to export that to another product, to another product with where you lose information or like Splunk or other things like that uh, will cost you more money. So you have everything in one place. Has is, you know, for small SME, maybe, yeah. And you can even tidy to the chat chatbot with your response plan into Slack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure they'll um, they'll polish it up over time. And uh, yeah, so there'll be announcements in coming months, no doubt, that uh, release new updates and improvements to it. Yep. And another service then that was announced is, or became generally available, because I think it was announced at reInvent, is DevOps Guru. Yep. Mm-hmm. So this is where... AWS throws their machine learning capabilities all over your logs and metrics and all those things and x-ray. Traces, yeah. Yep. And then basically helps you identify what's going on. So it's sort of an anomaly detection yeah. over over any, every single sort of op- op- operational. Yeah, I was thinking when I was looking at the announcements this, 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 this month, you almost need a section for things that have had ML inserted in them. And I know we have an, an AI and ML section, but it's um it's almost like, um, but this isn't in that section because it's, it's DevOps Guru and it just has ML in it. Do you know what I mean? Like... They kind of find opportunities, kind of squish ML. Actually, well, there's another one actually that's coming up um, in the same vein. Uh, it is the um, Redshift ML, and again, you know, it's it's one of those things where they've kind of taken an existing product and then they kind of go, well, how you know, how can we make ML put ML in here somewhere, and make it useful? It's a whole, there's a whole class of AWS products nowadays, I think, where that's that's kind of that's almost like the the way it goes, like it's a progression. I'll release a product, then they'll go, okay, now it's got ML in it. <laughs> so yeah, you help uh, detecting and provision compute capacity, for example, database IO problems, um, overutilization, memory links, uh, and stuff like that. And then um, mm-hmm. you can support now as well CloudWatch agent containers inside uh, with uh, EC2 EKS and ECS. So it's it's a kind of, yeah, like this call. It's a guru to help you to troubleshoot your application. And it's available in Sydney as well for us. Um, it can detect your workloads through a CloudFormation template. If you use something else, it's a bit harder to, to um, package your application. But, uh, you know, yeah, a good good product to test and to, uh, to have a play with. Yeah, well, hopefully one of us will get a um, have, have a go with it, and then they'll have some actual real life experience of what whether it does good things or not. That might apply some engineer in the future, right? The, the better you get, the better you know. Oh, your application has IO issue. Just upgrade your RDS with a bigger disk and, and a bigger provisional IOPS or something. So yeah, it can. You know, I mean, when we troubleshoot an application, we know where to look most of the time. Uh, the, the, the kind of general stuff like, oh, okay, it's going to be a, a computer memory, an IOPS or something issue. This one helps you very quickly to identify it um, and uh, help non kind of highly technical, maybe engineers or, or developers uh, in Infra to be able to fix the app. Uh, quicker. So this is basically the robots are coming for our jobs, right? Yeah, yeah, it's what I think so. <laughs> it's like a super SRE engineer, right? You know, SRE is between a dev and an infra guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here, that's that's providing that by collecting data from uh, your CloudWatch yeah. and X-ray and, and uh, predicting what could happen. Well, in general, I am all in favor of 
tools like the robots taking over <laughs> especially when it means that if something goes down at 3 a.m <laughs> it won't come point you oh you need to fix this yeah or let, let it fix it if it's so smart let it fix it itself you should reboot <laughs> <laughs> have you tried turning it off and turn it on again yeah <laughs> i think the other one from this section that is worth calling out is CloudFormation guard 2.0 yeah which um in a way is now not named properly anymore <laughs> because the big change for 2.0 is that it now does more than just cloud formation yeah, we can do a YAML formatted Kubernetes and Terraform JSON configuration. So interesting that uh, that product is generally available, but uh, with the wrong name now. Yeah. So for people who don't who don't know what it is, it's a policy as code evaluation tool. So what does that mean, Arjen? <laughs> it basically means you can write in a not great syntax, to be honest, what requirements there are for the templates that it scans. So as Jam pointed out, you can now basically scan any JSON or YAML formatted file. And using it, you can make sure that those follow certain conventions. This can be simple conventions, like if you create an EBS volume, it needs to have encryption on it. Yeah. But it can also be a lot more complex than that. Yeah. I found that you write more policy code than the code itself most of the time <laughs> to make sure, but then, you know, you scale it. And then that's the same for every test, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's the same with every test. Every test is like that. You've got one line of code, you've got five lines of test. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, that can be useful. There is many, many other open source products that other people are using to do that. But AWS has its own now. Uh, they used to use CFNAG. Uh, from a company in the US who did that open source, that product. Um, I use it a bit as well. And, and now CloudFormation Guard is, is similar. So Yeah. And they also improved the DSL, by the way. So while I was complaining that it doesn't write very well, it is a lot better with the new version. Yeah. Let's have a look at the security side of things. Okay. Jim, I think you are quite happy as well with the IAM? Yes, a new announcement about identity and access management. Uh, you, um, you can now start using service principle into conditions. So, I mean, condition is an addition of the IAM uh, policies you set up, and um, you can have now principle AWS service as a principle, which is great. Principal service name and principal service name list. So you can use that in your condition. So for example, in the past, you had a principle, it was principle star, and that rule was applied to everyone. You couldn't differentiate if it was an AWS service ma making that call to your bucket or to your different uh, other product. You had to treat it the same. So you were kind of in a conundrum where, where you want to allow uh, Cloudwell to do something, but then you want to limit that other person and you end up with only one bucket policy. With that possibility now, you can, for example, for an S3 bucket saying, well, I want to talk to that S3 bucket only through that uh, endpoint. So my source VPC need to be VPC, blah, blah. But if it is CloudTrail, Amazon.com, who want to talk to that bucket, then I'm going to allow it. So you can have that double kind of um, expression where you allow the access only for the external world of your environment, 
so your internal world, the, your, your own VPCs and then your own uh, users, and then you allow as well uh, service name from AWS. So that that's really, I think, a big addition and more flexibility to create bucket policies and, and I'm, I'm role. So I'm excited. I haven't used it yet with the customer, but I'm thinking about a couple of use cases. Yep, that's so good. AWS Audit Manager as well has three new framework, uh, NIST Cybersecurity 1.1, Foundational Security Best Practice from AWS, and AWS Weather Architecture Framework. Um, so you can enable them with Audit Manager and uh, Audit Manager will scan your environment and report on it. So now there is a lot of uh, new uh, frameworks, uh, CIS, NIST, GDPR, HIPAA, uh, and uh, I recommend to test that product is in Sydney as well. Audit Manager um, is available in Sydney. So as an AWS um well-architected framework practitioner, does that mean the robots have come for my job again? <laughs> well, I've been wondering about this one because the well-architected framework is so subjective, right? And there is a lot of gray area. How a scanning going to be able to highlight problem with your reliability or something? I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I, I said it in jest, really, because, I mean, most of what the well-architected framework's about is people. Yeah. Um, and behavior. It's not really so much about machines and, and how they're connected and what they're, how they're configured. Um, but obviously what it can, what it can do, what it can look at will be things like, you know, data, RDS, are they encrypted? Or not, not multi-AZ or something. Yeah. Or, or costing this kind of type of stuff. Yeah. 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 That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So presumably it'll pull in all of the other, you know, all of that sort of detail, which which I think actually would be really good. I mean, it would be good a good way of augmenting a, a, a well-architected review would be to actually have that audit done ahead of time, so you kind of know where the bodies are buried yeah. from a from a from an infrastructure point of view, and you can use that as an input to the to the conversation. So the e help, you're exactly right. It's just for 15 controls for the well-architected framework to evaluate the architecture and implement design. Uh, it doesn't do all the yeah. the rest of the people and culture very important component uh, who, are, who are part of that. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's really our, still our competitive advantage, fellow meat <laughs> meat people, that we, we the, the computers haven't figured us out yet. Um, so so we're, we're still able to, to make a living for a few more years. <laughs> Another one that I found interesting, just from mostly a cost perspective, is that it was with at support for log filtering. This basically means that at the web level, you can tell it to ignore certain things that could send to logs. Yeah. So if you know certain things are bound to happen, don't bother logging it. And that way you will save money and it makes it easier to filter. Otherwise, you'll have to use whatever application you use to filter your logs. Yeah, and pr pr presumably it would let you do things like uh, managed by exception, essentially. You you know that there's WAF rules that you want to know about if they get tripped. But but 99% of the time they, they don't get tripped, so you don't want a log entry to say there was no rule execution or the rules were, you know, the, yeah, the traffic, the traffic passed this rule, yeah, the request got through this rule. 
So yeah, for each filter, so you can decide if it is a match matching request, it should be logged or not, uh, or discarded after the WAF process it. So it will save you a lot of logs and really focus on what can be important uh, when you are under attack, instead of having uh, a lot of uh, logs who are you know, just there for useless. Um, another price reduction impact, I think, is uh, Amazon Macy can support now criteria-based backup selection. So you don't have to scan all your S3 buckets. You can really select by names or, or by count or um, what you're going to use uh, to, to scan through Macy. So when the Macy jobs run, it identify the criteria you highlighted and um, he remove them from the job scope and then uh, do do his job of scanning and reporting. I think the other the other nice thing about that was that if you add say add a public bucket to your account, you, if your criteria say scan all the public buckets, it will automatically add that new bucket into into the run. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's the other that's the other upside I think of that process. So yeah, you don't have to monitor which bucket I created or, or modify or delete it. It will scan uh, yeah. everything by default. So it's good. Still, um, you know, pricing of Macy is still high. It's ten cents per S3 bucket uh, per month. It's uh, one point two five dollars per gigabyte for the fifty thousand gigabyte per month. So um, yeah, but you know, very useful, very useful product. Yeah, if you, if if you need it, I think it would pay for itself. Yeah. Uh, there is uh, IM access control for Apache Kafka and MSK, so you can have now um, using IM instead of native Kafka type stuff. Exactly. So native Kafka, um, you need to configure your Apache uh, license um, MSK IM auth library to accept IM and um, it's only for new MSK clusters in all region uh, where MSK is available. So I know you can't do that for all clusters. Fair enough. Another one when I was surprised when I implemented that for a customer is the, um, the storing of CRL private S3 bucket. So when you install ACM, uh, the private certificate management system for AWS, where you can issue certificate now across account, you need to name an S3 bucket uh, for the revocation store. And in the past, that bucket had to be public. Otherwise, you couldn't create the ACM, which was, you know, very, very curious where you want to keep everything private, but your S3 bucket needs to be public. And why are you going to advertise yeah, yeah. all the... <laughs> Revocations. Exactly. Um, so now, from since the uh, 26th of May, uh, you can have block public access on that particular S3 bucket and uh, keep it private um, and keep all your PKI information of that into your own VPCs. Well done, AWS. That's what we're in the category of, didn't it always do that? Well, exactly. When you say it, it's like, what? I want a private CA. Why my S3 bucket need to be public? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Shall we move on to data storage and processing? Sounds like a plan. So um, one of the big ones here, just because I always like it, is support for Graviton 2 instances by Elasticsearch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought you'd call that out. More Graviton stuff. Yep. It's a completely managed service, so just use it. Yeah, who cares? What? Yeah, use use the cheaper chips. Is Elastic just made the latest version and compatible with the Amazon version anymore? There was uh, I saw something in the, in an article saying that uh, Elastic, you know, with a fight with AWS on that product, um, created a, a fork again. 
No, AWS forked it. Yeah, AWS forked it. It's that's the open Elasticsearch. Yeah, yeah, but now Elastic, I think, did a merge request or something inside their own product to make all the version or, or the AWS version completely incompatible. So the product going to diverge now, I think. Yep. Yeah, they, they, I think I think they are going to diverge. Yep. That's why AWS is investing in the um, the open fork, um, and that's going to be what they're going to push forward with. Um, yeah, I think we probably chatted a bit, little bit about that at some point, didn't we? The, I think it was, a, it was a couple of months ago, yeah, just the strategies of uh, Elastic versus AWS and who will win that battle. Yeah, time will tell, I guess. Hmm. Actually, speaking of Elastic... Uh, yeah, yeah, because it was the, the other announcement about the cold, cold storage, wasn't there? Cold, um, what do you call it? Yeah, a new lower cold storage. This one is cold. It's just called cold, isn't it? Oh, yeah, this one is just cold. So there's now you have hot, ultra warm, or cold. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I was thinking about that. I was thinking, mm, where did the product manager go when they were naming this one? Because though ultra warm was such a um, interesting name, and it did make people go and look at what they meant like why is it ultra why ultra warm why not just warm yeah and i kind of i kind of get it because they're probably pretty pleased with themselves in terms of like if you go and look at the implementation details of it it, it, you know what they've done is pretty cool it's pretty clever and so they didn't want to just call it warm where people probably just thought it was something prosaic that they'd done so so i kind of got that and uh, but then now this is just they've just called this cold and in a way it's really just ultra warm with a slightly more um <laughs> it's, it's it's really just ultra warm but not as warm <laughs> if you know what i mean because i think it's still using this exact same methods that ultra warm uses um to kind of keep that they just shuffle the shuffle the data off to s3 and it takes a little bit longer to bring it back than Ultra Warm does. So they should have called it Ultra, Ultra, well, I don't know. They should have come up with something. Yeah, not quite Glacier. But yeah, what about if they start putting that on Glacier or on, on, on Archive? That would be interesting. Oh, then, then it's going to be Ultra Cool. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So m- maybe that's yeah. coming. Maybe that's coming. Yeah, anyway, yes. So yeah, that was just interesting from that perspective. Uh, anything that uh, of you wants to call out here, really? Um, I, I was I was interested that you listed um, EFS supporting longer resource identifiers in this section, but you also call it out as the nano, thus also saying that it's really not very interesting. It is completely <laughs> not interesting. I just put it in here so that it's... So you didn't forget about it. Yeah. Um, uh, the the lake formation tag-based access control is probably interesting to... If you're using tag-based access control, that's probably meaningful. For, for accessing your data lake, you mean? So, so where I am? Is it okay? Yeah, yeah. So you tag your data um, and then use that as a mechanism of... Actually, the couple of um, Aurora ones that I found interesting first, and that is probably one that people in busier dev environments will be happy with is that it now supports T3 large instances instead of just T3 medium and small. So there's some cost savings to be had there. Uh, yeah, it doesn't support T4 instances, so this is best you can get there. But the other one there, and that again comes under the banner of didn't it already do that, is so they announced it under the name Aurora MySQL improves availability of read replicas. 
But what it basically means is that up until now, if you restarted the master in Aurora MySQL cluster, the read replicas wouldn't do anything. So you couldn't access them until the master was back up. Hmm. And now they've improved it so you can actually use your read replicas the way they should be used, even when the master is temporarily down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That does definitely fit in that, doesn't it? All, didn't it always do that category? I agree. Oh, well, good to know. Uh, another one interesting, um, and seeing that from AWS is to have more cross-region stuff. Uh, Amazon RDS for SQL Server now support managed disaster recovery for RDS cross-region automated backup. So you can automate your backup on RDS SQL Server, copy that to another region, and then you will make uh, your life easier if you need to restore that into another region. So you need SQL 2014 or later for this, and you can do that in the US and a couple of Europe uh, regions. But um, yeah, I found interesting that more and more product like AWS are focusing about cross-region replication for S3, for backups. Now there's more and more product coming with that. So it's interesting and exciting as well for us. Only a year and a half left. Yeah. <laughs> we have uh, a new region coming in September 22, apparently. So, um, so uh, yeah. Well, September is an early guess. It, I'm, I'm, I'm the optimistic part to have ac early access to it. But, yeah, it will be a uh, uh, fourth quarter of 2022, yeah. AINML then? Yep. Got nothing on this. Interesting, possibly just from thinking about it is that SageMaker Autopilot, which automatically selects the best model for you, now can even automatically deploy that for you. Wow. So you really don't have to do anything. You just run it and all your ML needs are handled and you hope for the best. <laughs> I don't know anybody who uses Autopilot. So in a way, I'm curious to see how well it does compared to other solutions because it's basically ml on top of ml yeah so you, you trust that autopilot going to make the best decision for you and then he will publish your model automatically yep interesting again removing the human guy <laughs> yeah i know i know it's robots now talking to robots i mean it's where will it end <laughs> autopilot also added automatic cross-validation so it does more checking and things like that to improve the quality on smaller data sets. I assume that on bigger data sets, this is not as much of an issue. So that's interesting in that way. Most of the other AINML things, though, I don't think any of us really have much to say about that. No, it's um, there's SageMaker, improvements to transcribe, um, it's mostly SageMaker stuff, Data Wrangler. It's got some improvements, um, as you said, autopilot, um, some stuff around model building pipelines for SageMaker, and one Kendra announcement that will do query suggestions now. So that's probably nice if you use Kendra, but I don't know anyone who does. But not saying it's bad, just saying I don't know anyone who does. It seems a perfectly lovely product. Um, so now it has query suggestions. Um, but if you're interested in AIML and SageMaker and such and Forecast, maybe, then uh, check out all the latest announcements on the um, feed. And all the links are, of course, in the show notes. Yeah. That's all the links are in the show notes. That's right. Excellent. Other cool stuff. Yep. 
What's cool? What's the coolest thing this month, do you reckon, in the other cool stuff section? Oh, interesting. I've just found my Nano for the month. Amazon WorkDocs adds filtering to the activity feed for both iOS and Android. There you go. Bazinga. So Amazon FinSpace, one of those services aimed at a very specific market. Unsurprisingly, financial services. Honestly, I don't know what it does. And it is very much not among my focus at the moment so it's a it's a it's a workspace uh, specifically for like you said financial services mainly stock market companies and, and banks uh, you have access to a lot of data from the stock market um, SP found with um, down jobs and stuff like that so you can really organize the data uh, clean the data and then feed that into some calculation system to be able to do some graphing or some prediction uh, and even put some some AI on top to be able to do some uh, you know analysis live of, of market data the price pricing is uh, $150 per month for each user in feed space and then uh, 14 cents per gigabyte uh, of your storage so um, yeah it's it's interesting is use um, can be used in Virginia US uh, Ohio Oregon, Ireland, and, and, and Canada Central really focus on one type of businesses uh, and uh, help you clean your data. There is a lot of product, if you love the stock market, where you can do that. But um, in this one, you can design your own models and, and your own calculation to help you trading. It was an interesting one that Canada is among the first to get something. Yeah, I mean, uh, because, I mean, there are a lot of Canada is, is using the stock market in the US, I guess. Um, so you got... Um, yeah, I would have loved to see London in there. Another interesting one, as usual, is new region announcements, this time in the United Arab Emirates. Hmm. Yeah, I saw that. Yep. So this one is coming... Uh, H2, I think, 2022. I think that, that was the... Uh, first half 2022. So um, great for them. Yeah. Not, not much else to say. Well, it's, it's great that the AWS is investing in the Middle East. Um, I, I work in the Middle East a bit before with different education businesses, and, and uh, they are very sensitive to the data sovereignty and data location. They are really scared of even the, the US conglomerate on this one. But um, so it's good to have some options on top of Outpost to be able to deploy, you know, a cloud workload in the Middle East and, and uh, do business over there. So um, I think that's good that AWS is everything. It's, I think, one of the first cloud providers going to be there. Hmm, cool. Yep. What else do we have? Application Cost Profiler, which somehow is supposed to give you the costs for when you run a SaaS basically yes yeah, so it's really to uh, kind of narrow down the, the cost of running one application or one maybe customer into your bigger uh, aws account or, or vpcs so i mean you can do the same with tagging today but that, that's going to be an easier way of uh, kind of having your application with with that particular cost so there is a data collection component there is a processing data component and then a data reporting where you can export to invoicing maybe or some other facts so that can be useful for you know large organization who want to do uh chargeback and stuff like that so um yeah to be explored more i think yeah so this is an interesting one because so they've they've specifically use the term tenants yeah and um i'm just wondering in what construct does a tenant exist in an aws context at the moment i know 
So in the context of, you know, SaaS um, and the SaaS products that AWS are kind of, you know, developing and rolling out, you know, multi-tenanted, those, those things are multi-tenanted. So obviously to be able to apportion costs to a tenant in a, in a SaaS type style product makes perfect sense. Is this, is this somehow connected to that or is it, uh, is it independent of that? Do, do you know? Uh, I mean, I would say that. Now, some SaaS provider create new accounts for each of their customers, but that obviously have the overhead cost. Um, some other SaaS provider are different offering, like, um, you know, standard and gold. And so they, they kind of segregate their workload with other customers, uh, in the higher, higher way. Um, and that's, yeah. I'm just cheating and looking at the looking at the web page for it right now. So it it looks like it actually relies on you instrumenting your application to pass data to the AWS application uh, cost right. profiler. So it's like it's like a it's like an ingestion engine and a, presumably some kind of reporting tool for that kind of data. So that's that's kind of how it looks. So it's a bit like 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 X-ray for them, Paul. That you need an agent in your in your app to be able. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's it's. It's like X-ray for billing kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. So you, but you do actually have to instrument your application to 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 give it the data, which makes sense now. Yeah. So that's that's where the the tenant construct comes from. It comes from your actual application sending the tenant information to cost profiler. Yeah. Uh, there is a new version of the application migration service. So it's kind of a rebranded of the Cloud Endure product. I don't know if people know Cloud Endure. It's, uh, it's an agent-based component that you install on your machine on-prem and you can copy our drive to cloud and then create a name from the create a machine. So now it's a rebranded application migration service because AWS bought Cloud Endure a couple of years ago uh, and it's still a free service. You still need a public endpoint. Uh, which is not going to be an AWS endpoint instead of using the Cloud Endure console, which was in the US. So a couple of uh, improvements in there. And uh, then you can start replicating your servers uh, uh, to AWS and migrate them very quickly with minimum downtime. And it's a free service for 90 days. Yeah, And that's what we all want. Everything in AWS as soon as possible. As soon as possible. <laughs> no, <laughs> we don't just... We don't especially want re-hosting, but you know, sometimes you need to exit a data center quickly or do something like that. So uh, you're going to do some re-hosting. Um, that support as well, older version of servers like 2003, Red Hat 4, Red Hat 5. So there is some, some benefit yeah. layer there for certain organization. My preference, obviously, proper pipeline, proper DevOps, proper build, proper serverless when you can. So um, that's more for legacy stuff. But you're such a dreamer. Yes, I am. <laughs> Shall we just do the nanos? Yeah. Oh, I don't have anything, by the way. But um, mm. um, I'll mention mine. The EFS now supports longer resource identifiers. This is one of those things where I'm just confused why it didn't have that from the start. Because by the time EFS came out, they'd already started giving longer resource identifiers for a lot of services. So why didn't they just start with that for EFS? Hmm. Hmm. Might be a older service. I mean, EC2, that's the second time we increase, right? The, the, the size of EC2 IDs. Yeah. So um, you've obviously um, fed me this one, Arjen, and you knew that I would pick it up. 
It's uh, WorkDocs adds filtering to the activity feed for both iOS and Android. So um, so the people who are using WorkDocs, and, you know, I'm not saying WorkDocs is a bad product. I do. You know, it's good if you, you're just being mean. Um, WorkDocs is, is, it fills a niche. And the filtering of the activity feed is is a, a feature I'm sure that the iOS iOS and Android users of that product have been crying out for. So um, so now it's there. But but does it have dark mode? That's the big question. <laughs> My biggest annoyance about WorkDocs is still that it is the main domain for AWS apps. Ah. Oh. Oh, that's so annoying, isn't it? It is so annoying. How, how many times have you gone to do an SSO login and you've ended up at the bloody work docs page? All the time. And so many times users will complain, my login doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You've tried to log in to work docs. Oh, no. That's, that's, a, that's, a, yeah, that's, that is a crazy, it's crazy that that's still the case. Yep. I would have thought that would be the kind of thing that someone would have picked up and gone, oh my God, this is shit. We mustn't stop doing this. Um, but yes, no, they haven't. Anyway, never mind. Okay. Um, nothing for you? No, nothing for me. In that case, let's wrap it up. So let me start by thanking our sponsors as usual. The user groups called sponsor Enabler and our silver sponsors AC3, CMD and Do It International. Of course, I want to thank my fellow hosts tonight, today, whenever you're listening. JM? <laughs> uh, thank you, everyone, for listening, and uh, very happy to do next month when it comes. Well, let's not anticipate these, these things. I mean, we could all be dead <laughs> by then. <laughs> I mean, an asteroid could come and yeah. wipe us no, all I'm out. I'm excited. You know? I'm always excited about new AWS stuff. You're optimistic. You're optimistic that, the, that next month will happen. As yeah, we're in lockdown here in Melbourne at the moment, and uh, we're still having fun, so that's okay. There's there's not that much harm we can come to, really, is there? It's tra- trapped in our houses. I I would thank Guy as well, but I'm not so sure if that's appropriate. <laughs> I know, I know you want to thank me, and and I can understand why. Thank you, Ayana. As always, it's uh, it's been fun. Everything we discuss is in the show notes, so you can reach those by going to the website at melp.adversug.org.au/podcast, or just look it up in your podcast player. And of course, while you're on the website, remember to join the user group Slack, come to our meetups. Hopefully, someday they'll be in person again. As just was just mentioned we're in lockdown so not this month <laughs> yeah hopefully soon yeah and of course thank you all for listening and goodbye bye, bye.